Well, welcome everybody to another episode. It's just Rob and I sitting here. We're doing another seminal episode and I picked the author. I thought this would be a really interesting one to look at and I'm going to start with an apology that I'm the Canadian. I spent 13 years studying French <laughs> and I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, but Rob's going to get it right. So it's Baronk Bila. Bila is, I think, the most important part. There you go. Yeah. We got it. But she is French. And what I think is really interesting is she is one of really the few female physiologists throughout history. And I think it's important to call that out, that in an otherwise male-dominated profession, I will say, in terms of research professor, in a field that oftentimes tests male subjects, I think it's really important that we highlight some of the, the female contribution that's out there because... Regardless, she did absolutely amazing work that is formative in the future. And I think to take it a step further, well, she is still doing research now. When we were picking mm -hmm. our studies, I looked at a 2023 study. She, yep. You pointed out she has a YouTube channel, though it's in French. It is in French. I tried to watch it. I didn't, didn't make it very far. But she was doing research back in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really important to point out about her is not only how vast her body of research is, but how much she has really defined how we have looked at interval work. Yeah. And I think that what's especially important about what she has done is she's what I'll call a coach's physiologist, right? Where reading her research, and we're going to cover three studies, one from 96, one from 99, one from 2001, reading her studies there's a lot of understandable practical information. It's not theoretical. It's not yeah. acronyms. It's not biochemistry and all of that. It is, there's a lot of great take-home messages that coaches can directly apply to the work that they're doing with their athletes. Yep. And you even see her pointing some of this out in her studies and reviews. So the 2001 review, which we'll get to in a minute, right at the very beginning of that, she made two interesting points that really caught my attention. So she pointed out the fact that in the lab, remember this is 90s and 2000s, most of the research was in running. And so a mm -hmm. big number was your velocity at VO2 max. Yep. So when they did a test and you determined VO2 max, what was the velocity you were running at? So that was that key number. But think of it as very similar to if you're a cyclist, power at VO2 max. Exactly. And all the studies would calibrate based on either running at that velocity of VO2 max or running at a percentage of it. But she pointed out, coaches tend to calibrate based on what's the speed you're going to be running in a race. And she then made a statement that just kind of, I went, whoa, which was there hasn't been a whole lot of big breakthroughs in the lab. Mm. Most of the big breakthroughs in training have been out in practice with coaches. Well, Trevor, I do want to say, because you bring up the lab, I want to kick this off with a funny story before we dive in too deeply. Earlier in her career, she worked, I believe, in Paris. And then kind of for two of these studies, she was at the University of Lille in France. And a funny story is this. I was in Antwerp, Belgium for work one year. And I love cyclocross. And so there was the Quatton Cross Lille race. And in my mind, because I was familiar with her and her work and her university, I assumed the race was in France. And so the day before the race, I left after I finished up work. I drove from Antwerp, Belgium, about what, two hours, I think, to Lille, two and a half hours to Lille. And got there, had dinner, woke up the next morning and said, I should figure out where the course is before I go to it. 
the course was actually in Lille, Belgium, which was another two and a half hours away. <laughs> I was in the total wrong country at this point. So I had to get back in my car, rush back to Belgium, drive past Antwerp, where I had started from the day before. And uh, fortunately, I, I made it on time and life was grand. But, uh, you know, I got to see two Lilles in a day. So there you go. I love Europe where you can be like in France mm -hmm. and go, oh, crap, I need to be in Belgium. <laughs> And, and poof, you could still get there. There you are. Exactly. Exactly. I come from Canada. Like to cross provinces, that's a major trip. Well, it, but it's only on one road. Yes. Literally. With cars, with square tires. So little Canadian fact for, I used to live just off of Young Street, which is the longest street in the world and it's something like 5,000 kilometers. It's insane. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. If you're an endurance athlete, the status of your GI system stretches further than just your overall health. It directly impacts athletic performance. Tune in to Fast Talk Femmes episode 123 to listen as Dr. Alan Lim sheds light on groundbreaking GI information that every coach and athlete can benefit from to leverage and optimize their nutrition plan. Check it out at fasttalklabs.com. Which one are we starting with today, Trevor? I actually, even though this is the last one, so two of these are from the 90s, as you point out, one's from 2001. I would like to start with the 2001 review for two reasons. One is when you look at all of her research and how often they've been cited, this is far and away her most cited study or review. Mm -hmm. The other reason I want to start with it is because she starts with the whole history of interval training. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting review that she... First half is all this history, you know, how we got to where we're at. And then the second half is saying, here's what we know so far about interval training. Yep. And bit of a spoiler alert, what I found really interesting there is the whole time she's talking about what we've seen with interval studies, she's kind of heading in one direction. And then when she gets to the, here's the long-term adaptations that we see, they kind of contradict where you think she's going. Hmm. Okay. Which I found interesting. So we'll, we'll get to that. But... The name of this review is Interval Training for Performance, a Scientific and Empirical Practice. And then in the second part of the title is Special Recommendations for Middle and Long Distance Running, Part 1, Aerobic Interval Training. This is the easiest to read French I've ever seen. Yes. <laughs> well, we just pointed this out before we went live that they were great reviews. Sometimes it can be a little hard to read because she wrote them solo. English is her second language. And there were times where you just read a paragraph and what did you say? It seemed really important. <laughs> it seemed really important, but I couldn't quite grasp what was being said. And there were certainly a few paragraphs where I had to reread and take my own notes as I was going through to piece things together. But I will say, her English is absolutely incredible. It's just that with some of the nuance when you're discussing right. some of the finer points, I 100% understood what she meant. It just wasn't intuitive for me, full of amazing information. Agreed. So do we want to start with the first part of this, the history? Well, it's up to you. I, when I was reviewing this, I history, might have skipped the whole history part and just went straight to the empirical part. <laughs> I love the history part. So let me just quickly cover it, what I found really fascinating. First off, she starts with the fact that the first time interval training was really described in the literature and when it really became popularized was in the 50s. Mm. I found that really interesting because you think this is something, oh, we've been doing for a long time. 
I read that and I'm like, God, my parents were alive before anybody had really heard the term interval work. Right. It's not that long ago that we really started thinking about this. Now, she did point out that before that, they had kind of naturally discovered, like they would use hills, you'd go hard up the hill and then recover coming down, things like that. But it really isn't that long ago that we've really started to describe interval training. Yeah, and she points out in here, Emil Zatopek, a 1952 gold medalist, she describes as the most famous athlete to use interval training, right? And, yep. and kind of the initial way that it was being instituted For me, what was really interesting as I glanced over the history section, there were so many names, Trevor, if you think back to Craft of Coaching, which just got wrapped up through Fast Talk Labs, a lot of the names that Joe Friel discussed were Mm -hmm. names that were in this introduction, in this history portion. And it's just amazing to see how those are carrying over, how the same influential people are influencing really until this day with the content that we're creating today. Yep. It is worth grabbing this review and looking at it just for there's one table in it alone where in the history part, she goes through very famous runners, you know, Olympic champions, world champions through the various points in history and shows what interval work they were doing. Mm. And just Mm -hmm. think about how much work she actually had to do to find all that information. So it's a fantastic table and you can just kind of look back through you know, what were the top runners in the 50s doing? What were the top runners in the 60s doing? It was pretty interesting. Yep. But another thing that was really interesting to me in the history was they were measuring oxygen consumption and had figured out the concept of VO2 max back in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. They were doing a lot of this work. So it was a, a Dr. Hill that invented the whole concept of VO2 max. Archibald. A.V. Hill. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You skipped over the history, but you know it. Well, I did learn it at one point in my career. Fair enough. (laughs) It was just 20 years ago. (laughs) But what I found really interesting about that as well, we have known about this idea of oxygen consumption and VO2 max for over a century now. It wasn't until 1967, and this wasn't for sport. This was for diagnostic Hmm. purposes. Forgive me for mispronouncing that term that they introduced the concept of an anaerobic threshold. And it really wasn't until the 70s and 80s that they really started looking at lactate threshold, anaerobic threshold, MLSS, all these sorts of things. So we've talked about this before when we've looked back at research that there's this huge emphasis in the body of research. And you're going to see this in the rest of our conversation of, of Bila that VO2max is central. VO2max is everything. We just talked about all the research was defined in terms of velocity of VO2max. But nowadays, what everybody talks about, what everybody who's training talks about is FTP, which is more that lactate threshold, that equivalent to lactate threshold or anaerobic threshold. So we've kind of made a switch. But when you look at the history, VO2max and the concept of VO2max dominated the research for a very, very long time. Yeah, and I think that especially as we're discussing at this point cyclists, right, when we talk about FTP, you know, what the power meter was invented in the late 1980s, it was not necessarily in widespread use, I wouldn't think, in in the mid-90s when this research, and she's reviewing research prior to the mid-90s, but as we've learned more and we started to say what measures or what metrics are going to predict performance the best, 
then I think FTP is going to explain more of the variance in performance. It's going to explain the difference in race results better than something like VO2 max alone. But I think that everybody recognizes and understands that VO2 max is still a hugely important component in determining FTP and not something that you can discount or discredit. Yep. But you did raise another really important point that is, even though Bilal obviously didn't talk about this in this review, it's really important to understand about the history, which was for the longest time when they were doing research on endurance sports, the focus was on running. Mm-hmm. And that was because you could put somebody on a treadmill and you could control velocity. And since they knew what your velocity of VO2 max was, they could set percentages. So it made it easy to, to control studies. So in all these reviews, you're going to hear very little mention of cycling. As a matter of fact, at the end of the final review that we talk about, she goes through the different endurance sports. She talks about swimming. She talks about rowing. She talks about running. She doesn't even cover cycling. When I was reading that, I took notes on the running section and then it was like swimming was next. And I'm like, eh, swimming, I'm going to skip that. Rowing, I'm going to skip that. Where's the, wait, the paper's done. Where's the cycle? It was not there at all. Which is really important because with the invention of the power meter, researchers went, oh my God, here is this great metric that we can really, really control. And you saw this switch over where now Mm -hmm. I would say the majority of the research in endurance sports is done on a cycle ergometer. And it's not that you couldn't quantify the workload that cyclists were doing prior to the power meter being invented, right? The Monarch bicycle is absolutely classic and You know, I do think that initially with AV Hill and the VO2 work, it was on cyclists as well. But Trevor, I think that you're right. It wasn't widespread use of cyclists until really the power meter came into commonplace within cycling. And uh, that was really pretty revolutionary for research. And unfortunately, we have to read about, gosh, all these runners until we get to an era where cycling becomes more important. So let me quickly finish up some of the key points of the history. So she goes through the different decades and we get to the 1960s. And again, it just kind of blows my mind how recent all of this is. Mm. In the 1960s, and and she pays huge respect to Dr. Astrand, Mm -hmm. you really start seeing the first research on interval training. Yep. And this is where I'm got to kind of correct myself because she goes through all of Astrand's research in the 1960s. And in a previous study, I talked about short interval work, 30-30s, 15-15s, that sort of thing, as the current type of interval work, Mm. where the longer intervals were the kind of the old school intervals. Mm. When she was talking about this first interval research, it was 30-30s. It Mm. was 15-15s. Astrum was looking at short intervals. I think the longest he looked at was two minutes by two minutes. She didn't mention a whole lot of, let's study 15-minute intervals, let's study 20-minute intervals. So I think what you had at the time, and this again goes to the difference between the lab and what was being done out on the road, was I think a lot of coaches were still having their athletes do the much longer work. But in the lab, right at the start of research on intervals, they were looking at short interval work. Yeah, sure. So quickly get into the 70s and 80s. As I mentioned before, that's where you see them starting to measure lactate threshold, try to get a grasp on this whole concept. This is also when they really started using velocities to dictate training. So this is, it was in the 80s that they really defined this velocity of VO2 max and said, let's start using percentages of that. She also pointed out it was in the 80s when we realized the importance of also using strength training, Mm -hmm. even in endurance athletes. So that's 
where she gets to in the history, she didn't really do a section on the 90s, even though this study is 2001. But I think from this point forward in the um, review, she's talking a lot more about what does the current research say. And because it's a 2001 review, I think she's seen 1990s as current in this mm, review. Sure. Yep. So Rob, you want to take it from here? Yeah. You know, I think that when we begin talking about the training aspect of this paper, it's interesting, right? Because we're looking at work that's now 22 years old, essentially. It's not as if there was something new and groundbreaking in here. There was a lot of little details, though, that I think are important that we review because they really change the nature of what we're doing today. Yes. It's kind of like we oftentimes, and, and we'll talk about 3030s, we oftentimes discuss the big broad concept of 3030s, but there's a lot of nuance that she talks about with 3030s that really change the nature of how that workout is effective for people or not. So this is why it's important. We sometimes forget some of the things that we knew. That's why it's important that we always go back and restudy, reread, re-up our education to make sure that we're remembering all the important details, not just the details we want to remember or the convenient details. Yeah. I think that's a really important point to emphasize here. We've done a few episodes in the past, and I'll dig them out and put them in the show notes, where we talked about the focus in the research on training at 90% or higher of VO2 max and talked about that as the dogma, but is that really the where we should be going? We've talked about training as a percentage of VO2 max versus training based on lactate threshold. We've, we've talked about all these things, but what's important is we are talking about them as this is the dogma. This is what's been around for a while and essentially challenging the dogma. At the time of this review, these were new ideas. Mm -hmm. She was introducing a lot of this. This was not dogma. This was, hey, let's look at what all the current research is showing. And this, these seems to be interesting trends. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more deeply about uh, what was in this training section. She broke the training section up into really three major uh, sections, I'll say. The first was in discussing short intervals. These are intervals that are essentially 15-15s, 30-30s, things of that nature. Then she discussed longer intervals at velocity at VO2 max. So these are now intervals that are maybe in the five to eight minute range, kind of as long as you can possibly hold a workload that high. And then she discussed, it's just funny, very long intervals, which were at intensities between maximal lactate steady state and the velocity of VO2 max. But ultimately, we're still talking about relatively short intervals. All of these are super Threshold, right. so to say, above four millimoles of lactate, above LT2, however you want to define that. And every once in a while, she would compare it to continuous training, but the continuous training was the like two by 20 minutes. Yep, exactly. Or steady for 40 minutes. So, what a lot of coaches were actually doing at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, let's dive into the short interval side of things. And she opens this paper up basically by saying, making a really interesting comparison, I thought between training for four to six minutes at a time versus training in a 15, 15, 15 seconds on, 15 seconds off. And I believe it was for kind of a total duration of about 60 minutes. So a relatively long amount of time. That blows my mind because I will tell you, 15, 15s <laughs> are one of my go-tos. Yeah, I do three sets of eight minutes yeah. with like 10 minute rest in between. Right. And I limp home from that workout. The idea of doing 15, 15s for an hour. Yeah. 
is just horrifying. Yeah. And it's interesting. This research really highlighted some differences between those two workouts. And what I thought was interesting was the level of lactate that the body experiences between the two of them. And in that longer interval, the four to six minute interval, the body was producing lactate of about 10 millimole, which is very high in the whole scheme of things. When I was doing a lot of physiology testing, we would stop a test and assume that a person was kind of at a maximal lactate if they got to eight or above. And so we're talking very high levels of lactate, whereas those 15-15 efforts were averaging about two millimoles right. of lactate. That is, two millimoles of lactate is barely above base in the whole scheme of things and solidly within kind of a zone three, between zone two and zone three, which is really physiologically, it's unbelievable that there was so much difference. But repeatedly throughout this, she talks about different studies that are citing exactly these same results. Yeah. And this is what I was getting at, where she seems to really be favoring these short intervals. And one Big of time. the reasons is she's saying it prevents, as you said, glycogen depletion. Yep. You keep lactate accumulation low, yep. but you spend significantly more time yeah. close to VO2 max. Yeah. The glycogen depletion side of things, I was really surprised in that those longer intervals really depleted glycogen in the type 2 fibers. And she proposed that the shorter intervals, the 15-15s, were much more taxing on the aerobic system and, and therefore probably better for training. Ultimately, I, I believe that she mentioned it was because you could recharge the oxygen that was on the myoglobin in the muscle, that you could regenerate uh, some creatine phosphate a little bit better, that you were ultimately avoiding the anaerobic contribution that the long intervals required because the long intervals burnt through all your ATP, all your creatine phosphate, all of your oxygen, and ultimately were pushed into an anaerobic situation. I actually found that really fascinating because she talks so much about these myoglobin stores. Mm -hmm. I have not read a study in the last 10 years that has mentioned that since. And I'm interested... Myoglobin? Yeah. Interested in why? Because it's such an interesting concept. When we talk about anaerobic energy production, it's constantly pointed out that you have in your muscle cells an ATP store. Mm -hmm. So you can work for several seconds just on that store of ATP before you have to start producing ATP. Yep. This is kind of the aerobic equivalent, which yep. is the myoglobin already has oxygen bound to it. So you have this availability of oxygen that you can use before you have to start delivering oxygen. And for those who are unaware, I'm sure that people are familiar with the term hemoglobin, Right. right. And that is the molecule floating in your bloodstream, delivering oxygen to all of your tissues, not just your muscle. Whereas myoglobin, the myo meaning muscle, is essentially like a hemoglobin that is locked inside the muscle. Right. And it is able to hold on to oxygen there. And I believe at one point she mentioned the myoglobin was able to provide oxygen directly for about half of the 15 second interval, just right. based on the stores in the muscle itself. And then it was able to be recharged in the very frequent rest periods that were occurring. Right. So the idea is if you do those longer four minute intervals, you deplete the myoglobin and it's just depleted. Gone. Where you do the 15-15s and that myoglobin can keep at least partially restocking its oxygen. Exactly. And the thing that supports this that blew my mind was the fact that they said lipid oxidation 
was higher in the 15 15s as opposed to the four to six minute intervals. Right. What? I was so shocked to read that. And, And I'm not in disbelief. It was just one of those things like these, when I talk about the basics and the nuances that we need to go back and re understand. This is the detail that I'm talking about. Yeah, and it is fascinating. So she is painting this picture, and I think where she really landed, I mean, the intervals she seemed to love were the 30-30s, with an asterisk that if you do a complete rest in the 30-second rest, you never actually achieve VO2 max. So you need to have an active rest in that 30-second rest. But she said as long as you're doing that, you have this great scenario where you are spending significantly more time Mm -hmm at or close to VO2 max, yep. you're not accumulating lactate, yep. you're burning more fat. Yep. What an amazing aerobic <laughs> interval. <laughs> no, it's true. And, and that, you just mentioned the other caveat that I was thinking of when I gave that in the, in the intro. We talk a lot about 30-30s, but we oftentimes don't necessarily talk about the actual prescription of 30-30s. And it, it is overwhelmingly important that that recovery is an active recovery. And they found that that being at 50% of your peak or your hard workload was about the right place that you can get enough recovery that you can continue doing these one after another, but that you're also uh, keeping that oxygen consumption high throughout the recovery period. And she pointed out that in the research, they were able, they, they studied up to 18 30-30 efforts in a row And it seems like subjects were hitting VO2 max at about the fifth interval, and then they were maintaining from the fifth to the 18th interval. So essentially, they said 85% of the time, if I remember the percent right, was spent at VO2 max. And that is about as high as you can possibly get. Yep. Another thing, just a side point that I love, because it was right about this point in the review, again, we did that whole study about this, is this concept of training at 90% or higher VO2 max an effective way to train? But we were saying, you know, this is what the research is focused on forever. It was like page 23 or 24 in this review, she kind of presents it as this new concept. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you can see there, this is when they were thinking about these sorts of things. Exactly, exactly. So I want to touch, you know, at this point, we're kind of blending the different sections as we have the conversation but I want to keep going on this percent of time at VO2 max right. because to point out the opposite, when we talk about the longer intervals at, say, 100% of the velocity or the power at VO2 max, an, an interval where you're doing four to six minutes of work, it takes multiple minutes to get to a VO2 max level. So you might be doing that for five minutes but you might not hit VO2 max until three, three and a half minutes in, which means out of that five minute effort, you're only getting a minute and a half or so of time at VO2 max. Whereas in those 30 30s, if you're able to continue, boom, knocking them out, then you're able to maintain that level. And because you're not depleting all of the stores like you are in the long effort, you don't need the long recovery like the long efforts require. Yep. And I mean, she paints a pretty bleak picture of these long (laughs) intervals. She's like, yeah, you don't improve your time at VO2 max. You accumulate a ton of lactate. Yep. You know, it's just, it's not sounding too positive. Right down to the fact that she spent pages on the short intervals. Uh She gets to the long intervals and I'm not even sure it was a full page. I know. Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. The one thing that she does talk about in the long intervals and probably will be short on this here because we're going to cover a whole study about this 
is she talks about, they would do tests with athletes where they would have them run at their velocity at VO2 max and test how long they could sustain it. So that would be your time limit at the velocity at VO2 max. And she talks briefly about the benefits of doing intervals at half that length. Mm -hmm. And it really customizes it to the individuals because what you'll see is some individuals can only go like two, three minutes Mm -hmm. at that velocity. Other individuals can go six, seven, eight minutes at that velocity. So if you do kind of half that velocity, you're going to achieve VO2 max, but it's individualized to you. Yep, definitely. So she also discussed, and we haven't brought it up at this Mm. point, those very long intervals. And they termed it, it was like what? like V delta 50. Exactly. Excellent. I'm glad you had that on the tip of your tongue. Thank you. I'm looking right at it. Do you remember when that term also came up, Trevor, in an episode that we did? No, I don't. When did we cover that? If you remember back, we talked about Ben Ronstad and his variable workload VO2 max intervals. The low part of the variable workload was at this sort of point, right? Right. Halfway between your maximal lactate steady state and your VO2 max. I just found that interesting that that connection. I wonder if he was influenced when he chose that workload for his research. I wonder if he was influenced by some of this research that she's referencing here. That's a really good point. It'd be interesting. The other thing on that note that I'm interested in this review, which she didn't fully answer, even though she used both terms, there's another important number. So you you will hear about critical power in cycling, Mm -hmm. but there's also critical velocity. And that's defined as the lowest velocity at which you can still obtain VO2 max. Correct. Yes. And it is in between your maximal lactate steady state and your VO2 max. Yep. So the question I have is this V delta 50, which is right halfway in between, yep. and critical velocity, how do they relate to one another and how close are they to one another? And, and I'm answering this based off just of my general knowledge and nothing, I'm not referencing any material. In my understanding the 50% mark that we're discussing now is a higher workload than critical power or critical velocity. And oftentimes the critical power velocity is is a few percent above where maximal lactate steady state is, whereas the 50% is going to be a bit higher than that. Which is fair. She does point out though that intervals at critical velocity are generally done at about anywhere from four minutes to six and a half minutes. Oh, really? Yep. That's much shorter than I would have expected. Well, part of what she talks about here is if you just do continuous work at critical velocity or V delta 50, Mm -hmm. she's like, it just doesn't do much for you. You don't spend much more time at VO2 max. But then she says, what happens if you do intervals at those intensities? Mm -hmm. And so she raised that as a, a time period for doing these intervals and said that can actually double the time that you spend at VO2 max Mm -hmm. when you do intervals at critical power. Now, it's interesting, when she was discussing these really long intervals, she brought up the concept of the VO2 slope component and did mention that eliciting that slope component could actually be an efficient way of training your VO2 max. But what was interesting is she pointed out that elite athletes don't necessarily exhibit a slow component until they're at a relatively high percent of their VO2 max already. Yep. So I point this out to athletes all the time. And you see this action in heart rate. And yes, she does say in the review that you have to measure VO2, that you can't measure heart rate for this. But 
I'm going to argue slightly differently. When I have an amateur athlete and I give them, say, a five-minute interval Mm -hmm. at these sort of intensities, what do you see with heart rate? And this is explaining the slow component. First, it rises very rapidly up Mm -hmm. close to their threshold heart rate. But then over the course of the five minutes, you're going to see a gradual rise in that heart rate. It's never going to level off. Yep. And for what it's worth, five minutes ought to be enough time for somebody to reach a steady state. So it's right. not like it's just climbing up to the value it's going to get to. Right. It already sort of plateaued, and now it's ticking up one beat sort of at a time. Right. Now, if I give the same intervals to an elite athlete, mm-hmm. obviously it's going to be at a higher velocity if you're a runner, a higher power if you're a cyclist. Yep. But relatively, it's the same intervals. What you see is the heart rate. You have that rapid rise in the heart rate, and then it just flattens. Yep. And for that five minutes, it is a flat line. Yep. You finish the interval and then it drops down again. Yep. And that's one of the ways you can see improvements in training is if you can just flatten out those intervals. And for those who aren't familiar with the slow component, Trevor previously talked about critical power or critical velocity being the lowest workload that will eventually elicit VO2 max. It eventually elicits VO2 max because of that slow component, right? Let's say you go out and you start pedaling at 300 watts and that takes 52 milliliters of oxygen per kg per minute. Normally, if that was below critical power, you could sit there for five, 10 minutes and it would just sit at 52 thereabout. If that's above your critical power, it goes 52, 53, 54, 55, 56. And then eventually you hit 58 and that's what your VO2 max is. Yep. So she kind of hints at the fact that in amateurs, you can use these longer intervals, you can get them to VO2 max and get a good training effect. But I do feel that she was hinting at In those elites, you need to do those shorter, more severe intervals because that's the only way you're going to elicit VO2 max in them. No, certainly. Anyway, I have an interval workout today. You know I'm doing 30-30s. Yeah, you you love the short stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So I do both. You know, so I do the longer stuff in the winter. I do the shorter stuff during the season. I did a Zwift race the other day. Whew, first one in a year. Oh, did you? Knocked my legs off. God. I started one last night. (laughs) You started one? (laughs) I was second last on the, the crossing the start line. <laughs> I was like three minutes back. Awesome. Love it. Within 10 minutes. I Yeah, I'm not ready for Zwift racing oh, yet. Oh, my God. All right, Trevor. So here's what I found interesting. She then gets into the long-term effects. What are the adaptations we see to mm-hmm. all this? After she has painted a very clear picture that short intervals seem to be magical. These 30-30s are incredible. Long intervals, whole lot of pain, whole lot of lactate accumulation. Don't spend a lot of time at VO2 max. So then she gets to what's the adaptation that we see. And I was expecting her to go, man, it was amazing with the 3030s. And it wasn't that. So this is on page 27. Quote, the VO2 max improvement was significantly higher for the long interval training and the continuous running. So about a 6% improvement. Versus the short interval training, about a 3.6% improvement. And I had to double read that because I'm like, you've been going this one way and then you show this result and it's saying the exact opposite. And further on says the largest increase was seen in the continuous run group when time to exhaustion increased by 94% from 35 to 68 minutes for long interval training increased by 67% and for short interval training time to exhaustion increased by 65%. One thing I want to point out, though, Trevor, I think that's important is the next sentence that was after the first part of what you said. 
And that was the rest. Th- this could be because of the fact that the rest were complete in the short interval. So I think that for that particular study that's being referenced there, it shows the power of maybe the inappropriate 30-30 workout prescription. And that if you do allow complete rest, you're not taxing that VO2 max anymore. So I read that too and went, okay, so now she's going to bring up other studies where she shows the opposite and she doesn't. Mm. So and it might just be they hadn't done those more effective research and she's the one pointing this out. But it was very interesting that this was the study she brought up to show the adaptations and it's telling the exact opposite story. Well, and I think that we have to understand, right, that both of these workout methods have shown to be effective over time. And it's not as if, you know, Dr. Seiler, right, has amazing research that shows eight-minute intervals are the creme de la creme. He wouldn't say that, but (laughs) he actually hates when we say stuff like that. But it's not as if they're not effective. But what I do take away from this is perhaps if the 3030s are as effective, equally effective, but they are inducing, say, the lower lactate and have these other positive things, does that make them potentially more useful in certain situations if you're going after a certain effect or you're trying to cause certain adaptations or you're trying to, say, alleviate maybe the stress on the body? It's shades of gray, right, when you're making choices. So I think where this all leads to, and I think we're on the same page here and agree, you remember this was a 2001 review And she is pointing out stuff that's now just accepted, but wasn't really known then. And is is really advancing our understanding of interval work. Mm -hmm. But there were certain conclusions she couldn't draw. And she, in the conclusions of the study, she says that. She literally says, it is an important but unsolved question, which type of training is most effective to maintain a level representing 90% of VO2 max for 40 minutes or to tax 100% of the VO2 capacity for about 16 minutes. Today, this is still an open question. And I think that's exactly where Dr. Ronstadt was when he was doing his time at 90% as being a very effective measure. And his conclusion based on that research was racking up as much time above 90% is the most important when you're designing a VO2 max level workout. Yeah. Hey cycling coaches, this is Trevor Connor. I'd like to invite you to ignite your spark at the 2024 Endurance Exchange. This year's event is powered by USA Cycling and USA Triathlon and offers new info and great networking opportunities. Mix it up with endurance coaches from around the globe and soak up forward-looking talks from renowned experts like keynote speaker Dr. Inigo Sambalan. I'll also be there sharing my insights on how to choose reliable and trustworthy info in a world of information overload. Experience the Endurance Exchange this January in North Carolina. For more information, go to endurancexchange.com. And damn, Rob, we are 43 minutes in. So we <laughs> really study, we really dived into this. So we Ooh. might have to fly through this study that she did in, uh, what was this, 96? If you want to do the ninety-nine, Oh, you want to do the VO2. Hmm. Yeah, because it does relate very much to what we were just talking about. Yep. So I'll give the, the very quick methods on this. So she was really trying to look at two things in the study. One was this idea that I mentioned before, which was if we base interval work, so have runners run at their velocity of VO2 max, 
but base the intervals on half of the time to exhaustion yep. at velocity to VO2 max. So every runner is going to do a different length interval. And I want to emphasize what you're saying right now, because oftentimes we would do something like you should do four by four minutes at 120% of FTP. That's a great yep. workout. It's a universal workout. Now take two different athletes. And I bet me and you are maybe a little bit different in this regard, right? 120% of FTP, athlete one might be able to hold that for four and a half minutes and athlete two might be able to hold that for eight minutes. Is that the same workout for both people when you use the same four by four minute prescription? In her mind, it's not. And that's what this paper is about. Right. And what she's getting at is that if you prescribe the same interval and use the same length for two athletes, it might be perfect for one athlete. It might be burnout, material for the other athlete because one athlete let's still take the classic five by five minute vo2 intervals for one athlete you know their time limit at vo2 max might be four and a half minutes so they're going over their time limit every single time exactly and dying the other athlete their time limit might be eight minutes so they're they're doing a hard workout but they're not going to their limit and it's going to have a very different effect and i think that this concept that people can hold that vo2 max power for different lengths of time, I think that that's lost. I think everybody assumes your VO2 max power is the power you can do for four minutes or whatever the number is. And that's not the case when you're testing people in the lab. Yep, everybody is different. So that leads to the second part of the study, which was looking at if you individualize it, Mm -hmm. does it still push an athlete into overtraining? Yep. So the way she did this is they did four weeks where the athletes were doing one of these interval workouts at the velocity of VO2 max a week, and then one interval at OBLA, so basically a threshold workout. Then they took a rest, and then they did four weeks where they were doing three interval sessions at the velocity of VO2 max and still doing the one OBLA workout. So this was a should-be-pushing-over-training block and doing that for four weeks. Yeah. And and to point out, there was in the first, in the normal training session, in addition to the two interval workouts Trevor described, there were four sessions of endurance. Those went down to two sessions of endurance in the overtraining when they added the two additional yeah. intensity days. And if I remember correctly, that overtraining had kind of been a validated overtraining method that had been used in previous research. Kind of like, we know that doing this for this length of time causes these overtraining markers. And basically the way to think of this is, since you'd mentioned Dr. Seiler, Dr. Seiler would look at the first four weeks here and go, ah, what a nice prescription. (laughs) And he would look at that second four weeks and just go, what, what, what? What are you doing? <laughs> that's that's going to kill the athlete. <laughs> yeah, but block periodization might say that that overtraining week is exactly what it should be. Well, but it's four weeks. That's Oh, okay. That's, okay. that's okay. what I had to double check. I was like, All well, right. you know, one week of that, that's, that's right. fine. And I was like, Whatever. four weeks of that? Details. Ah. <laughs> so let's, let's fly through. I'll just kind of give the highlights of the results. So that first four weeks with just the one session was called the normal training. The other four weeks, I love the fact that like, you can see their bias. They called it the overtraining period. Mm-hmm. Yep. So OT. The normal training block at the end of it, you saw improvements in their velocity at VO2 max. Yep. You saw improvements in their running economy, mm-hmm. but their actual VO2 max did not change. Correct. And so it's quite possible that the improved running economy is what allowed them to run faster. That the velocity of max. max. Exactly. They were doing more work for the same amount of oxygen. So now let's talk about the overtraining period. 
You did see an increase in norepinephrine after an exhaustive workout. So there were definitely some markers that they were, they were going into an overtrained state. But ultimately, their subjective rating mm-hmm. wasn't high enough to say, yes, this is overtraining, though their subjective rating of soreness was very high. Mm-hmm. But the key thing here is there was no further improvement in their velocity at VO2max. They, they maintained what they achieved during the normal training. They didn't improve any further, but they you also didn't see the decline in performance that you would expect from being overtrained. Yeah, I think that there's a couple takeaways here, right? Where training is good. Normal training is good. You can get amazing improvements off the standard stuff that we prescribe and recommend every day. Additional training on top of that is not always better. They did, you know, what, three times or at least twice the high-intensity work, but they did not see commensurate improvements in in VO2 max or these other measures. But at the same time, on the opposite side of that, when answering the question or a question that she had set out to answer, by individualizing this workout protocol in a known workout method that should have overtrained people, granted there was some increase in norepinephrine, but we didn't see some other changes that you would expect to see in an acute sense with overtraining. Maximal heart rate stayed essentially the same. Maximal lactate stayed essentially the same. And I will say that from somebody who's done a lot of physiology, a lot of lactate testing, a decrease in maximal lactate is a very early indicator that somebody is heading off into the overtraining state. And so to see that those metrics haven't necessarily come down, even though performance didn't get better, to see those didn't come down is really saying, hey, this individualized method that she's talking about might have something to it in terms of not just burying some people into the ground. Yep. And what I love about this is, you know, when we talk about training software, so you go back to the history of WKO and Training Peaks and Golden Cheetah and all this software. When it first started coming out, you know, I think this software was coming out in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was really no individualization. Mm-hmm. Like everybody had basically the same training zone just based on, on one metric. Yep. Interval prescription, a lot of the, the work that you saw athletes doing, again, was not individualized. It was, you know, five by fives, that's great for improving this, or two by 20s. So this whole concept of individualizing to each athlete feels like this new thing. Like, you know, now you, you've, you've heard Hunter Allen and Dr. Um, Coggins talk about the whole new training zones that really look at your profile. Mm-hmm. So your VO2 max relative to thresholds can be very different from another person's. Mm-hmm. And it also looks at this duration, you know, how long you can sustain this. But you think of that as a, a new concept. I'm sorry, I didn't explain that very well. But what I love is here you have a 1999 study where that concept of you got to individualize to the athlete is being introduced. And again, it goes back to that. We always have to be reviewing some of this old information mm-hmm. to remember the things that we've forgotten. You know, Trevor, I agree with you in that workout prescription right now is oftentimes not individualized. And I want to bring up, I use a few different training platforms, especially throughout the winter when the weather isn't so good outside. And uh, years ago, Neil Henderson had created, along with Matt Casson, this 4DP sort mm-hmm. of profile. And what's unique about that is, and, and if there are other platforms that have this and I don't know about it, my apologies, it's just I don't use that platform. And this was something that they had created and incorporated into Sufferfest, and then Sufferfest was bought by Wahoo, and now it's become Wahoo X or whatever. 
But in that, there are individual sort of ranges for threshold efforts, for sprint efforts, for VO2 efforts. And it's not like other platforms where it's just like, oh, 120%. For me, who's somebody who's very strong above my FTP, my numbers are relatively high compared to other individuals. And I have always, as an individual, had to say when I do a 20-minute test, I multiply that number by 0.92, not by 0.95, because I know I'm stronger at 20 minutes than I should be based on what my FTP is. So this individualization, it doesn't happen enough. And this is the only platform I know that's doing it. And it's not a promotion of of Wahoo. It's just to point out and say, hey, I only know of one that's doing this right now, but it's been an important metric for a long, long time. And you see the differences in people. So you point out what you're like. I love to point out when I do that test. So you do the five-minute VO2 max test, (laughs) then you take a break, and then you do the 20-minute threshold test. It looks like I'm just doing a (laughs) 25-minute threshold test with a break in between. (laughs) It's just not that different. Yeah, exactly, right? It's funny. So the only issue I had with this study, and it's a very minor issue, She points out in the introduction that a lot of coaches at the time would do normal training for a while. Then they would do a four-week overload with their athletes ahead of the season to get those last little gains. And then they would rest the athlete and take them into the race season. Mm -hmm. She did her test after the the four-week overload only a week later, but even points out that the coaches do that much earlier relative to the season. The athletes Mm. get several weeks to rest. So it would have been interesting if she had done the testing several weeks after the overload period, because I don't think the athletes were fully rested a week later. And you might actually have seen some gains if you'd waited a few weeks. And so ultimately this discusses the topic of a super compensation, right? Where we know that when somebody does hard work, their performance immediately, it goes down. You do a hard workout yesterday and then you do a maximal test today, you're probably going to be worse for it. You do that for a couple weeks and then you take that recovery, you let the body repair and the hope is that you come back above baseline. And so you're sort of proposing that one week they might not have had that compensation. They might still be on their way back up and that we would eventually see better performance giving a little bit more time. No, agreed. Well, Rob... We have been covering a lot. We still got one giant review to cover here. Lactate. Lactate. (laughs) And what I love about this is we just talked about that first review where I was saying you really see the focus on VO2 max. That review was 2001. She doesn't really talk that much about lactate in that review. Correct. But here's a review that's five years earlier that's about lactate. And here's my hot take. I'm going to bring this up where in that first review where she's talking about intervals and velocity of VO2 max, she's introducing concepts that are now considered really the, you know, at the forefront of the the science of interval training. You know, these are still relevant concepts. In this review where she's talking about anaerobic threshold and lactate accumulation and talking about the physiology behind it, you really see some outdated concepts if you Mm. ask me. Yeah, I struggled with that a little bit. And I think that she was, without explicitly saying it like she did in the 2001 paper, I think that she was kind of going through the history, not necessarily making statements about what she believed or what the current was, but just sort of talking about the different ways of thinking. And there was one point where I was reading, and, and it highlights exactly what you're saying, where I was like, 
this doesn't square with what I know. And I had to double check dates. I was like, was this before Brooks proposed lactate shuttle? And it wasn't because he proposed. She mentions Brooks a couple of times. Eventually she does. But in the beginning, she yeah. hadn't when I was reading some of this. So that's why I think it was a little bit more of a historical thing because Brooks's lactate shuttle was uh, 1985 was the first time I could see that term. Uh, and this paper was in 96. And she did eventually get to talking about Brooks. So I do think it was a little bit more of a historical perspective. Yep. The other thing, though, that I really like about this is, again, you see her love of VO2 max and velocity of VO2 max in that other review. This one, she starts out, like, first paragraph. There's a lot of controversy around blood lactate. We don't really know if it's physiological, and, and this is where Dr. San Milan somewhere is cringing because, mm -hmm. you know, for him, it's all about lactate. Yeah. If he could create a lactate meter on the road, he would throw out power, he'd throw out heart rate, everything. But she's like, yeah, we question the physiological basis of this. It doesn't really represent production. Like she basically bad mouse it right at the start. And then he goes, but yeah, let's go ahead and review this. Mm. You don't see the love for lactate threshold that you, you saw for VO2 max. Yeah, certainly. So... You know, I'll kind of start, she goes into this concept of anaerobic threshold and lactate accumulation. We've talked about this on the show and you've heard some very current physiologists get very angry about this, but she starts by defining there are two states. There's the one state, and again, I'm going to preface this by saying this is outdated, so I'm not stating this. This is just what's in the review. She says there's this sustainable low intensity where lactate doesn't accumulate, where you are producing your energy aerobically, and then you hit a certain point, which she calls the anaerobic threshold, and then above the anaerobic threshold, it's no longer sustainable, you're accumulating lactate, and that's because you're bringing in glycolysis to produce energy. Now, again, that's very outdated. We know you're using all these different energy systems all the time. It's just ratios. So this is that older concept of you're aerobic until you hit anaerobic threshold, then you're bringing in all this anaerobic metabolism. Yeah, it's interesting too, in that first area, the sustainable at a steady state, it says, and I'm reading from the paper right now, exercise is limited by the increase of the internal temperature associated with dehydration prevented by supplementation of water and substrate. In some regard, those are limiting factors, but I'm not going to say that they're the only limiting factors. And then it says you go above that and you're in this non-sustainable. And there it says exhaustion and fatigue through the disturbance of the internal biochemical environment of the working muscle and whole body caused by a high or maximal acidosis. And that might not be completely accurate. Yes, there are a few inaccuracies here. So I'm glad you pointed that out. One thing she does point out that, you know, absolutely makes intuitive sense, but it was just nice to read it that I had to kind of just think about for a minute because you're going to start, when you look at most training zones, mm -hmm. there's a training zone that is between your VO2 max and your anaerobic threshold. Yep. So in a lot of systems, I think that's zone five. But you have these, these two key points, your VO2 max and your anaerobic threshold. She points out, that lactate accumulation doesn't correlate with VO2. Mm -hmm. That they're two different things that you're measuring and they don't really match up with one another. So when you think about that, we have this lactate threshold, we have this VO2 max, 
but you use two different systems to identify them. And those two systems don't fully correlate. So it's kind of, to use a metaphor, you're mashing apples and oranges together to come up with our training zones. Yeah, no, certainly. And we can't necessarily define what we would otherwise call the VO2 max by a lactate measure, right? For some people, that's at six millimoles. For some, it's at seven, for eight. It's not like we can identify something on a curve like we can on on the lower part of the profile. And so you're almost forced into doing that, but it is important to point out that, yeah, we're, we're measuring two totally different Good systems. Things. Right. She points out VO2 max is based on oxygen delivery. Mm-hmm. Lactate accumulation, lactate threshold is based on glycolytic flux. One is aerobic, one is anaerobic. Yeah. Anyway, I just found that very interesting. So where do we want to go to next? Yeah, I think that she covered some great basics and I'm just going to throw them out here. You know, lactate and performance, like I was talking about earlier, about 92% of the variance in performance is explained at this sort of lactate threshold, which is very high. What I found interesting, you know, lactate uh, in untrained individuals, that lactate threshold is improved within two to three weeks and the ultimately slow twitch muscle fiber count contributes very, very highly to how high your lactate threshold is. Now, what was super interesting to me, and I'm jumping around a little bit, children, pre-puberty children produce significantly less lactate than yep. adults do. And I had always, and, and maybe this was just me misunderstanding something. you were going to bring this up. Really? Nice. Yeah. I had always in my mind apparently assumed that children were more anaerobic than they potentially actually are with their low levels of lactate production. So that is what I've been taught too, which is there's no point in training prepubescent kids in endurance sports because they don't really develop that system until after puberty. Mm -hmm. But she's pointing out they seem to be absolute aerobic animals. And after they hit puberty, then lactate shoots through the roof. Right. What the heck? So, yeah, I would love to dive deeper into that. I don't have an answer for you because I had the same thing of, wait, that's the exact opposite of what I thought. Yeah, exactly. Now, I will say I don't necessarily believe in training, quote unquote, somebody prior to puberty. I love that kids run and my kids run and they ride bikes, but oftentimes it's fun. It's not intervals. And so I do think that we can apply a lot of our training principles to a, what I'll call a junior athlete, somebody in that 14, 15 mm-hmm. to 18 year old range. But when we are talking about somebody who hasn't gone through puberty yet, their physiology is very different. And maybe we don't quite understand that as coaches. Right. One of the important things she pointed out there is their lactate levels are completely different. Mm-hmm. So this is an earlier review. And again, this is something that's a little bit outdated, but for a long time, they basically said your lactate threshold is at four, once your blood lactate levels are four millimole per liter. And they kind of said, that's it for everybody. We now know, no, that's different. Some people are higher, some people are lower. You can't use that. But she wrote this at a time when that, that was well believed and she even brought that up. But she points out that you might not be able to use those numbers in children, that Mm -hmm. actually in children, lactate threshold might be closer to 2.5. Yeah, yeah. She directly said about two and a half millimoles in children equates to about four millimoles in an adult. And, you know, Trevor, it's interesting that you bring up this concept of the four millimole as a threshold. Oftentimes that's referred to as OBLA, the onset of blood lactic acid. In this review, she points out another metric, maximal lactate steady state. And Frank Overton, when he had his physiology lab, was a big proponent of MLSS. 
And MLSS is essentially, um, if you take serial lactate measurements over time at one workload, meaning let's say you go out and you ride at 200 watts and you test at five minutes, 10 minutes, so on and so forth, that you stay at 2.2 millimoles the entire time. And then you bump that up to 220 watts. And then you test and it's two and a half, 2.6, 2.7, and it keeps on climbing. Then you're above that maximal lactate steady state. Something that she talks about in here is that that maximal lactate steady state can occur anywhere between two and seven millimoles of lactate when traditionally we think about lactate threshold being ultimately in the three and a half to four millimole range. So it's all over the place. By the way, one other thing I want to point out about the kids that I just couldn't get get out of my head is you know how difficult it is to get adults to follow a prescription. Mm -hmm. I am picturing a study where they have 10-year-olds and they're like, we want you to run at this exact velocity and then we're going to prick your finger every three minutes and take your blood. Like I want to find that study because I bet you in the study and the methods it says, we started with 30 children. We lost 20 of the children because they started chasing butterflies. (laughs) No, Trevor, kids are easy. Just hold some candy in front of them. They'll do anything you want. Nice. (laughs) A maximal test for a child is just a pack of M&Ms slightly out of reach. (laughs) So another interesting thing she brought up in this review, which is again, a very, now a very established concept, but I think was very new when she wrote this review is this idea that one of the biggest training effects you see in endurance athletes is you see a rise in that lactate threshold relative to VO2 max. Yep. So again, it's well, it's hard to improve your VO2 max. In elite athletes, their lactate threshold gets very close yep. to it. Yeah, and ultimately that ties to performance, right? Because it's essentially indicating that you are oxidizing fuel at a higher rate relative to your maximum. And ultimately that means that all of those higher workloads are more sustainable than if you're in a glycolytic situation and producing a lot of lactate and you're not gonna be able to hold quite as long because of the changes in metabolism. So here's where I found the review interesting and it goes, and again, I just point out, this is a 1996 review. Remember when you're talking about that 2001 review, and she was given the history, it was really only in the 80s that they started studying lactate threshold and how to measure it. So she has a whole section where she talks about incremental exercise, so basically testing Mm -hmm. for lactate threshold. And you realize as you're reading this, most of the research that's been done in this was after this review. Uh, Okay, yep. So what she's covering doesn't have the benefit of of what we know now. Mm -hmm. And so she actually talks about individual anaerobic threshold, IAT, Mm -hmm. which I haven't heard used in a long time. And she defines it as the maximal production of lactate where you can still clear at the same rate, Mm -hmm. which to me is the definition of MLSS, maximal lactate steady state. Mm -hmm. But she does compare them and say they're very close. They're not quite the same thing. Mm. Interesting. So I'm not sure how they they differ. Yeah. But when she's talking about testing, you don't hear the usual, you know, three-minute stages and how you measure the lactate curve. A stepwise test like we do now, yeah. She kind of touches on it, but you can just tell there isn't the understanding that we have now. Mm -hmm. So the two things that she covers is, one, the Borg scale, which is that Mm -hmm. how hard do you feel you're going and points out that the Borg scale actually correlates really well with lactate levels. And this is the original Borg scale, the 6 to 20 Borg scale, I will point out. Yep, agreed. 
And then the other interesting thing was where she lands on is determining MLSS. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was surprised how developed this was in the mid-90s versus some of the other testing methods because the MLSS, it is one of the most brutal tests that you can do because mm-hmm. you have to basically exercise at certain velocities or powers for about 30 minutes. So you do a 30-minute test and then you come back like two days later, you do another 30-minute test, come back two days later, do another 30-minute test. They're all right around where we think your LMSS is. And then what we're looking for is the one where your your lactates stay level. Yeah. If I remember right for Frank's protocol, it was day one was more of a normal incremental test to understand the ballpark. And then day two, you came back. Let's say they think the ballpark is 250 watts. You would then come back and do 240, 250, 260. And you would really do these longer efforts dialing it in. But think about you're doing all of these efforts right around your MLSS. That's really taxing to do sustained intervals there. You're doing five, six, basically threshold time trials. Yep, exactly. So it's hard. It takes a lot of time. It interferes with your training. You're going to get a very accurate number, but then training effect, that number might not be accurate in a month or two. Yeah. You know, something that she brought up in this paper um, that really carries through to today are some of the absolute values. And these apply to running uh, and race distances, but pointed out that marathon is often completed between two and three millimoles of lactate. And at Boulder Center for Sports Medicine, we oftentimes use a two and a half millimole as a corollary for this is about your marathon pace. And I will say I do a lot of lactate testing uh, on my wife, Melissa, and it correlates pretty well to her marathon paces. Uh, So that carries through to today. And she pointed out that a four millimole measure is oftentimes around what people can hold for a, a 10 to a 16K. So you already talked about children. She also talks about are there differences in women? Mm-hmm. And what, again, I found interesting here is she didn't really, even though there's a whole review about lactate, she doesn't talk that much about lactate. So she does point out you don't really see differences in women in terms of that percent of VO2 max and mitochondrial density. But women actually have a superior running economy and higher aerobic reliance. So when they're training at those you know, sub VO2 paces or sub threshold paces, they, they're using a lot more fat than, than men are. And it is interesting because I feel like today we are talking about the fact that women have better economy, again, as if it's a new concept. Right. And, and it's something that she had brought up many years ago, that women have better economy than men. It is how it is, physiologically speaking. But yeah, at, at this time, and, and uh, I'm failing to think of any more recent research, so I'm just going to reply based on what she's saying, that threshold is occurring at about the same percent of VO2 max for men and women. The other interesting thing, again, this was just one study. They looked for metrics that would predict performance in male runners mm-hmm. and found four that pretty much predicted 96% of performance. And in that same study, they basically said, we found nothing that correlated with performance in women. Mm-hmm. But she does cite other studies that say that onset of blood lactate accumulation, so that's another way of finding around that threshold, is a predictor in women. Listeners, this is a great time of year to expand your training knowledge. Join Fast Talk Laboratories now for the best knowledge base of training science on topics like polarized training, intervals, data analysis, sports nutrition, physiology, and more. Join Fast Talk Labs today and push your thinking and your training to all new heights. See more at fasttalklabs.com slash join. 
Let's talk about masters. Yeah, this let's applies, talk about them. This applies to you. It's starting to apply to me. Yeah, welcome to my world. Oh God, it's getting there too quick. It was interesting that lactate, we just talked about lactate as a percent of VO2 max for men and women. For masters athletes, lactate as a percent of VO2 max can actually increase. And it's not necessarily for a good reason. It's because we're able to maintain our lactate threshold better than we can maintain our VO2 max. And so as we age, that VO2 max is coming down, lactate threshold is coming down less, and the percent looks better. But I don't know, I think I'm going to keep working on my VO2 max and try to make sure it doesn't come yeah. down much. No, and she points that out, that this is why you can see athletes in their 40s where they can't match younger competitors in a two, three-minute effort, mm -hmm. put them in a 30-minute time trial, and they can still do world-class performance. Sure, yep. I mean, I was never world-class for 30 minutes, but whatever. Yeah, world-class for 15 <laughs> seconds? <laughs> Maybe not world-class, but certainly better. I still love the fact that half the videos that we use for Fast Talk Labs Show or that video of you and I sprinting together. Me demolishing you. you absolutely destroying <laughs> me. There was, when we were doing that, I, I remember looking back at one point, like, did he break his bike? Like, where is yeah. he? My favorite part is when you watch it from overhead, it looks like I just quit. But the fact of the matter is I know I didn't quit. <laughs> <laughs> it just looks like that. Well, yeah, because you can go that speed forever. So you didn't stop. Nope. Yeah, it was, it was sad. It was very, very sad. So I think let's just cover a couple minutes. We already addressed the fact that, again, going back to 1996, she goes through the different endurance sports. So she has a whole section on runners, a whole section on swimmers, a whole section on rowing, nothing on cyclists. Nothing on cyclists. And, you know, there, there were a few interesting points, but I think we can jump through this. Actually, I found when she's covering runners, there wasn't that much that was new because... The previous review and this review, so much of the research was always on runners. It was just kind of a summary of everything sure. we just talked about. Yep. Swimmers, what I found interesting is because of the drag that you get through water, their MLSS, their, their pace at MLSS is very, very close to their pace at VO2 max. Well, yeah. I mean, because the hydrodynamics of that, right, are, right. think about, and I don't know, I'm pulling this out of thin air, aerodynamics, it's cubed Power right. is cubed with velocity. So every kilometer an hour faster, the power required is, is cubed. Exactly. In swimming, it's got to be some ungodly high thing because you're going through such a thick medium, right. right? Yeah. And sorry, I just want to correct. Some people might misinterpret me. It's not, let's say you're going at 20 kilometers an hour and you're doing 200 watts. It's not that to go to 21 kilometers an hour, you have to put out 600 watts. <laughs> it's... If you take the w increase in wattage you had to use to go from 19 to 20 kilometers an hour, correct? you cube that, yep. and that's the increase you need to go from 20 the, to 21. The difference. Great call out. Just to make sure people don't quote me on that and go, oh my God. I must be riding 6,000 watts. <laughs> Finally, she brought up rowing, and I think the important thing that she pointed out, and again, just going back to her love of VO2 max, is most rowing events are five, six, seven minutes in length. So a rowing race is basically a VO2 max yep. test. Anything else you want to point out about this re review, Rob? I have one last thing, but anything you want to point out? No, I think that we satisfied everything that I was uh, interested in here, Trevor. Wow me with your last point. So I love this. And remember, this is 1996. 
Robinson et al. attempted to quantify training by the use of objective longitudinal training data. They showed that the mean intensity of steady-state running for the participants in this study is considerably lower than the optimal training intensities suggested by some authors quoted above. Mm. So here's my interpretation of that. This was the big realization that led to the whole idea of polarized training, which was we had been focusing in the research so much on interval work. We were really focused on high intensity, working in those higher exercise domains. But the top endurance athletes had already discovered that spending most of their time in low intensity and just a little bit of time at very high intensity is how they achieve the top levels. And what you kind of see here, and sorry, Balam, if you hear this and and yell at me, I understand, (laughs) is her kind of scratching her head at, why are these runners going so slow? Mm. And it's because we really hadn't, that whole concept really hadn't come out in the literature yet. Sure. It was just so focused on intensity and intervals at Mm. the time. Interesting. Shall we wrap this one up, Rob? Man, this was a great conversation. I really love talking about these researchers that have been formative the funny stories, the interesting things. It's always eye-opening to not necessarily just look at what's new, but to go back and reread. And I'm sure that I had read these studies, but I certainly forgot about them in the meantime. Well, it gives such a context to what we read now. So for example, again, I was pointing out, you see this huge focus in her research on VO2 max, velocity of VO2 max. Mm -hmm. And you still see that really impacting the research now, even though you have so many athletes and so many coaches that are training based on FTP mm-hmm. that you still see the importance of this historical context and how it's helped to shape where we are now. Yeah. Well, this afternoon I am 100% doing some 30 thirties with a recovery at 50% of my high intensity workload. Just saying. Yeah. Well, that has been another seminal episode. That was a lot of fun. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you ever prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join to become a part of our education and coaching community. For Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.